Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you, you yourself will come and gather your scattered sheep. I pray, Lord, that now through your word, spirit, as you uh, fall upon our ears and work in our hearts, that you would seek us out, search us out, and bring us, Lord, to your holy hill, that we may worship you and rest in the presence of our shepherd and our king. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. The neighborhood where I live is like a wild west of domestic animals. Uh, Every couple of weeks, there's a new dog, never before seen, that just appears out of the morning mist to drive our neighbor dogs crazy. Cats roam the woods like jaguars and leave litters of kittens in our ramshackle shed, kittens which evade capture and in due course begin their own feral adventures. And in the past month, there's been a bizarre pair, a Nubian goat and a Siberian husky. And the two of them have mastered the art of escape from their domicile and have self-designated themselves the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid of Cahaba River Estates. You never know where they're going to pop up. And who can really discern the intentions of a goat and a husky who have formed an alliance? Our own contribution to this free-ranging chaos are our chickens, specifically the five hens which we inherited from Sam Saxon of blessed memory. Now, most days, these chickens are nothing but delight. They provide fresh eggs, light entertainment, and a memory of a good man now present with the Lord. But lately, they've begun to range beyond our property lines, and specifically, And most problematically, they have discovered our neighbor's mulch. Now, whatever catnip does to cats, this is what mulch does to chickens. They they enter some state of euphoria where nothing in the world exists but these scraps of dark wood and the promise of insects beneath, and they scratch and peck and scratch and peck with abandon. This mulch fills them with such a consuming desire that they remain oblivious, impervious to the frantic jumping and barking of our neighbor's German shepherd, who is at war within himself, knowing deep down that if he attacks these chickens, he will encounter the wrath of his master, but knowing even deeper down that God put these birds on the earth for him to devour. (laughs) And so it's a comic scene, these hens scratching frantically away, flinging a mess of carefully tended mulch all around our neighbor's yard, and this German shepherd being driven to madness as he watches. And Several times now our neighbor has called us and we've had to walk over and drag these chickens away from their mulch and they do not go gentle into that good night when there's mulch yet to scratch and we have yet to establish a long-term solution. Now all of this is my domestic way of getting at something that you who grew up on farms already know or you who have small children already know or you who have ever had responsibility for a group of humans know and that's this. The flocks and the herds which we tend, tend to go astray. The flocks and the herds which we have responsibility and authority to tend, they tend to go astray. It's like an imperative of nature. They can't help but wander to seek out what they think are greener pastures. And inevitably, they end up scattered and lost and hungry 
and in danger. And this is the comparison that Yahweh is making in Ezekiel 34, where we'll be this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Ezekiel 34, I would exhort you to do so. And I know that we're going to Ezekiel may come as a bit of a disappointment because I know you were on the edge of your pew after that gospel reading, and it's such a doozy of a gospel reading. Who are the sheep? Who are the goats? Which one am I? Is this Jesus teaching work salvation? And I wish we had time to, to get to that passage too, but you should know me well enough by now to know that the prophet Ezekiel is my mulch. <laughs> Anytime he comes up in the lectionary, I'm going to go and scratch around. So we started our reading in Ezekiel 34 this morning at verse 11, which is right when things get nice. But to have the gospel message really land, we need the previous 10 verses, which set that good news in high contrast with the bad news. Because verses 1 through 10 of chapter 34 are not pleasant shepherd words. They are a prophecy of condemnation against the shepherds of Israel. Now, I know you know this, but just to remind you, Ezekiel is the prophet who is speaking before and during and after the great judgment against Jerusalem that we know as the Babylonian exile, the siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the Babylonian exile. So for generations and generations, the people of Judah, and remember, this is the, these are the people whom Yahweh, our God, has claimed as his own. And he has cared for them, and he's protected them, and he's covenanted with them to be their God and for them to be his people. But for generations and generations, they have allowed their hearts to wander away from God like restless animals, like erring flocks and herds. They've abandoned the law which Yahweh gave them. They've neglected and sometimes entirely forsaken the worship of their God. They've traded fidelity to God for a kind of geopolitical security, and they've set up instead altars and high places for the worship of idols, of false gods. That's what Judah has done. That's why judgment is coming, and bearing a particular guilt for this faithlessness are the shepherds of Israel. And that's against whom Ezekiel 34 comes. The whole flock has wandered, but the buck especially stops with the shepherds. And so it begins in chapter 34. Son of man, Yahweh says, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord Yahweh. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And it gets worse from there. It's, it's actually hard to imagine worse shepherds than the ones described here. The whole point of the shepherding gig is the health and flourishing of the flock. And instead, these shepherds of Israel have treated the flocks entrusted to them like a no-strings trust fund for their own pleasure. They haven't fed the flock once, but they've certainly feasted on it. Just in Ezekiel's time, these shepherds have seized the people's property. They've judged with prejudice against the poor. They've used the public tax money to establish idolatrous cults. They've sold out their citizens whenever it's politically expedient. Now, who are these worthless shepherds? Who are the ones who have so miserably failed in their shepherding? They're the rulers of Israel the kings of Israel and in Judah. Because in the Bible, you've probably noticed this, although you've maybe never articulated it like I hadn't to myself. In the Bible, shepherds are kings. And kings 
are shepherds. And this is literally true, right? Moses, David, the list goes on. There were literal shepherds who became kings. But all through the Bible, shepherds are kings, kings are shepherds. And from the beginning, Yahweh, our God, has been clear about his expectation for the kings over his people. It's there in Deuteronomy 17, if you ever want to check it out. And this is generations before the monarchy even begins with Saul. But God says the requirement for every king is this. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. That's the expectation for kings in Israel and then in Judah. But what have the kings of Israel and Judah done instead? Time and again, they've done what was right, not in God's eyes, but in their own eyes. They've neglected and outright rejected the law of God. They've feared men rather than God. They have subjugated their brothers and exploited them. And you can picture in your mind the flocks that these shepherds have left behind. Their knees shaking, their stomachs concave, and clumps of haphazardly shorn wool sticking to their sides, their eyes glazed and sickly. And these are the lucky sheep, the lucky ones, the ones who haven't already been torn to pieces by the wild beasts who are lost and lonely on a thousand hills scattered by fear and predation and exile. Now this prophecy in Ezekiel 34 is a real prophecy to a real on-the-ground situation around 587 BC. The people of Israel and now of Judah truly have been scattered at this point. They are exiled far away from the family land, the promised land. They're wounded They're devoured. But you all know that the Bible's prophecies refer so often to more than one reality. We might think of the biblical prophecies, so many of them like these massive clouds. Like imagine the biggest cloud you've ever seen. The first rain shower from that cloud, the first fulfillment of that prophecy, it doesn't exhaust the cloud. There are showers yet to come. And so when we picture this herding and scattered flock, when we picture negligent and wicked shepherds, it's a picture that we can recognize Israel in the 6th century, but it's also a picture in which you should recognize yourself. We should recognize ourselves because every one of us in here and everyone out there, out in the world, is in this state, scattered far from the mountain of God, starving for the good food of truth, bruised and wounded by the predations of the countless wicked shepherds who make their living by exploiting the lives of others. Everyone in here is the victim of the sins of some shepherds, countless shepherds. Some of you have been failed by your parents, the first authorities ever set over your lives. Some of you have been neglected or misled or abused by those who were tasked to teach you or coach you, or guide you in the world. Some of you have been wounded by churches or pastors, which has a direct resonance with this passage. And every one of us, if we are given the grace to see our situation clearly, should recognize ourselves as a lost, wounded, fearful, aimless, starving sheep. 
But let's not get carried away and think that if we can just scapegoat the shepherds of our own lives, then we can be done with it. Because since the Garden of Eden, we have had this persistent temptation to place the blame on others. To think that the problem with the world, the problem that I have, these can be entirely blamed on others. Parents or siblings or grandparents, our spouses or our children, our bosses, our colleagues, our neighbors. The real problem with the world, the real problem with me is those ghouls in Congress, we might think to ourselves. The real problem is, are those executives in their boardrooms or the governors and presidents in their palaces. If it weren't for these kings, if it weren't for these shepherds, I'd be well and whole. I'd be prosperous and happy, but don't fool yourself, because that's a mistake. It's a lie. Now, don't hear me say that the sins of others against you have not harmed you, have not wounded you, have not chewed you up and spat you out. They have. I know it. And it's good and right to recognize that you have been sinned against in your own life. Forgiveness can only start once we name those things. And this is part of what we mean by the doctrine of original sin, that the world, the whole world into which every one of us was born and is born is a world set against God, at enmity with God, with generations of consequences piled up. Before you were ever born, the gospel had already been perverted a thousand times, and churches had split a thousand times, and nations and peoples had been subjugated and enslaved a thousand times. Your own family inevitably carries generations of the consequences of sin, And every network that we inherit or that we acquire is already sick with sin. But that's only part of the doctrine of original sin. The other part, maybe the bigger part, is that you were born and carry with you a heart that is twisted, a heart that hates God and loves sin. Israel was failed by her shepherd kings, but she was never required to follow them into sin We may be sheep wounded by shepherds, but we too have the same hearts as the wicked shepherds. We maybe just lack the power, the opportunity to really let that wickedness give vent. And you know this, if you're honest, there's not some perfect, innocent you hiding somewhere underneath all your own sin, who's simply been the victim of one human history's worth of sin. There's just you, sinner and sinned against. Wounded sheep and wicked shepherd, miserable and lost all the way through. Remember the chickens and the mulch. We choose our wandering more times than not. We seek the very desires which then enslave us. We bite the very hand that would feed us. There are wicked shepherds in our lives, surely, but more often than not, we choose our own wicked shepherds. We seek them out. We offer them our time, our attention, our money, our devotion, and we do it freely. We freely bow at the throne of material success, prosperity, prestige, status, education, sex, money, power. If you don't believe me, place to start, just look at your screen time app and see where your time really goes. Read over your credit card statement and see where your money most readily flows to what kings are you offering yourself freely. And I know that many of you I don't need to convince of your sinfulness, of your wickedness, because it's those who are growing in grace, precisely those who know all the more deeply how deep your sin runs. As Isaiah 53 says it, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have followed too much 
the devices and desires of our own hearts. We are the wounded sheep and the wicked shepherd both, and there is no health in us. And it's only now that we can hear verse 11, which breaks into Ezekiel like a ray of light into a thick darkness. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Hear that repetition, that emphasis in the Lord's voice. I'll do it. I myself. Every ruler in your life will betray you and exploit you and scatter you and wound you and starve you, and that includes you yourself as your own leader. Only God himself can come and shepherd his people and rule his people with unflinching mercy and unflagging justice. And point for point, he goes through, he's going to remedy the faults and abuses of the wicked shepherds. Those wicked shepherds scatter, God will search out and gather. They were brutal and harsh, God will make you to graze on rich pasture and lie down and rest. In the Bible, shepherds are kings, and kings are shepherds, and this true shepherd king begins his reign with a rescue. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I, God says, seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And here we Christians cannot help but hear a prophecy not only of the return from exile, but of the incarnation. Who is the promised shepherd king who is coming to rescue his flock? It's Jesus, the good shepherd, the son of God, Christ the king, taking on human nature human flesh, stepping down from his throne in humility and in love for you, and like a searching shepherd seeking you out, lost and bleeding and bleating in the badlands of our sin. And he comes to us, our Lord Jesus. He comes to us and rescues us from all nations, because the church that belongs to Christ Jesus is, is from all nations, including this one, and he binds up the injured as only he can by bearing our iniquity and forgiving our sin. He comes not only to lead us, as every shepherd ever has promised to do, but he comes to lay down his life for the sheep. Christ, our shepherd, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. He laid down his life for the sheep. And having laid down his life for the sheep, Christ, our shepherd king, now brings us, even on his shoulders, away from the scattered lands of our deadly vices and our destructive patterns of thought and our worthless idolatries. And he brings us away from those and he brings us home, to his home, to God's holy mountain, which is rich with the food and the drink which our souls so desperately need. And he feeds us which, with the good pasture of his word which teaches us to see and know the world rightly, and he makes us to lie down, to have true rest, the only rest which can exist, rest in the presence of a shepherd who is also the king above all gods, and yet is a shepherd who loves us. He can, he can drive away the wild beasts so that we can rest secure, and yet that power is not directed against us, it is directed for us. We are protected and loved, and so we can lie down and rest. This is what Yahweh, the triune God, promised 600 years before Christ came. And this is what Yahweh, the triune God, promises you, 
some 2,000 years after Christ has come. God alone is a faithful shepherd. God alone is a faithful king, and he's not passive about it. He's out in the caverns and in the badlands. He's going to the very places that the sick congregate and where the suffering huddle. And every single person, and I know there are many of you in here, every single person who experiences the conviction of their sin, who experiences their need for a Savior, and in that same moment hears the good news that such a Savior is precisely who has come for you, has come into the world to suffer for your sins and to save you from death, that is the story of a scattered sheep brought home by the one good shepherd. And every single baptism into Christ's church is another instance of the good shepherd coming into the world and seeking out a soul scattered far from home and sick with sin and gathering them up in his arms himself and bringing them by his divine power to the mountain of God into the church. And that's what's happening this morning if we have eyes to see it. Four more fulfillments of this shepherd king's promise. Because they may not look like it, but Kaysen and Wallace and Declan and SJ are lost sheep. They haven't lived long enough to grow a real harvest of sin and shame and death, but all the seeds are there. They, just like we, are by nature children of wrath and slaves to sin. They are wicked shepherds in the waiting. But in baptism, we receive from God that which by nature we cannot have. We receive it from God, and by that we mean we receive the forgiveness of sin, which we cannot achieve for ourselves. We receive the binding up of our wounds. We receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. And this is why the, the baptism of infants and the young children of believers, in many ways they're the perfect candidates for baptism because no one deserves this salvation. No one can have it apart from the relentless mission of a shepherd king who loves us enough to search us out and carry us home. And the children of believers picture this utterly unmerited grace of God. Kaysen and Wallace and Declan and SJ, sweet as they may be, have no boast before us this morning. They have no claim to the gifts that they are about to receive apart from the free gift of God. They have been carried here this morning by the free gift of God who in love sought them out before they could even know that they were lost. And the baptism of young children shows us how our pursuing shepherd, he does the pursuing himself. I, I myself will do it, God says, but he's pleased to do it by using ordinary means. It's God who put these young men into a home and under parents whom he's already claimed as his own so that there would never be a day when they were not prayed over and loved and told of the God who governs all things. It's God who has brought them into a church where they have heard and are hearing and will continue to hear the word of God faithfully taught and studied and put into practice. It's God who has brought them here into this school of prayer where they will learn and will learn ever deeper to entrust the entirety of their lives to him. It's God who's placed them in this church family, this group of men and women already claimed by Christ who are very soon about to make a vow a vow to do all in your power to support these young men in their life in Christ. We all have a stake in their growing life of faith. 
And what's important to see, though, this morning is that all of this, all of these things that God has been orchestrating to bring these young men to this morning into the church through baptism, from the beginning and, the, and to the end, that is the work of a relentlessly pursuing shepherd. It's the work of God. And this isn't to say that grown believers are not also perfect candidates for baptism, right? SJ um, comes to this baptismal font as, as one who has already known in his life the bitter fruits of sin. He's one who has been sinned against and who has himself sinned against God and man. And he would tell you this. SJ and I have been meeting for, for several weeks now to, to prepare for his baptism. And the theme that's come up in SJ and I's conversation more than any other was his desire and his need for salvation, for a savior. He knows that he needs a savior. He wants a savior. And he, he knows that that savior is the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. And no one old enough to comprehend and confess that Christ is the shepherd and the king Nobody has any more boast than a week old infant. Salvation is a grace. It's a gift. It is a gift and a product of a searching out by the relentless shepherd. And today that shepherd brings Cason and Wallace and Declan and SJ into his kingdom, onto his mountain. Our shepherd king, the Lord Jesus Christ, has sought you out, my brothers. When you have been scattered and savaged, he has brought you to the Father's mountain. And he will feed you by his spirit. I, I myself, God says, I will search for my sheep and, and seek them out. He has done it and he is doing it now. And it is only fitting then that we raise our voices every morning. And again, this morning in Psalm 95's Psalm of Praise. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the strength of God in the strength of our salvation let us come before his presence with thanksgiving show ourselves glad in him with psalms for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in his hand are all the depths of the earth the heights of the mountains are his also the sea is his for he made it his hands prepared the dry land O come let us worship and fall down and kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Amen.